Hello, love bug, and welcome to Chronic Sex, the podcast about how self-love, relationships, sex, and sexuality are affected by chronic illness and disability. Given the subject matter, this podcast is not suitable for those under the age of 18, and unless you have headphones in right now, you probably shouldn't be listening to us at work. My name's Kirsten Schultz, and I'm your host. It's good to have you with us today, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. This is the second episode of the Chronic Sex Podcast, and I am super excited and a little overwhelmed. I don't mind saying that. Before I dive into today's conversation, I want to take a second to thank my pal Jenny from Chronic Babe. In general, she's a badass, but that definitely goes double for being the first to support the show via Patreon. If you'd like to help support Chronic Sex like Jenny, please check out the show notes for links. You could also just search Kirsten Schultz on Patreon or go to patreon.com slash Kirsten is the coolest. Yeah, I'm inventive. Now on to today's show. Today we're talking with my friend Chelsea. She deals with multiple chronic illnesses too, and they've had a large impact on her sex life and honestly dating in general. We talk about dating, being the go-to people for sex questions from our friends, and cool things like fat life, BDSM, and kink. You know, I know about you, but just for our fabulous listener or listeners, depending on how this goes, uh, <laughs> could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, a little bit about kind of why you were looking forward to coming on the podcast today? Sure. Um, so I'm 42 years old. I grew up in Minnesota, but 20 years ago, I um, traveled around the U.S. and landed in Albuquerque because I was taking a road trip with a friend, ran out of money, and I was like, okay, Albuquerque. Um, so I've lived in six different states, and I came back to Minnesota after I became really sick, and I couldn't take care of myself, and um, work anymore. So I'm back here so my family can kind of keep an eye on me. Um, and I was looking forward to talking to you because um, I've always liked to talk about sex, um, not just because it's sexy, but because I'm also a very practical person. So I've always wanted to be educated and educate others. Um, I have friends who ask me all the time about stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal any names, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, we're, we're those people that people come to when they're like, "Hey, my mom needs to not know I'm going to Planned Parenthood. Can we, you know, hang out today?" Or <laughs> um, even more specific condom. than that, yeah, like, um, "Hey, my boyfriend wants to be my pony. How do I?" <laughs> How do I figure that out? Right. <laughs> That's a tricky one. Yeah. Tricky so, um, you know, I I either either know about that or I can d- 
direct them to the people that know about that kind of stuff. So um, they know that I'm in the know. So that's, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty open-minded. <laughs> it, I think it helps um, to have an open mind when you're talking about sex and sexuality and all of that stuff that goes along with being very human. There's such um, There's such a vulnerability in asking questions of anyone. Um, And so, you know, for those of us who end up being asked the questions, being open-minded and being supportive and caring is really, um, you know, it's it's very vital to kind of the role that we serve in our communities or with our friends. Mm -hmm. Now, that isn't to say that I'm, that there's nothing that can shock me because quite honestly, there are things that still shock me. Um, I still have to work on my poker face, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel you. I, I, you know, and I bring this up often, but I'm still surprised by sex with water balloons. There's still a fetish group about that. I, That's you know, interesting. Yeah, there's eight people in it on FetLife. Um, huh. So, <laughs> so found that one back a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about what FetLife is? for people who are unaware? Yeah, so um, FetLife is an online community where people can um, log in either with their their own personality or a personality that they choose for themselves. Um, and they can either, how do I say this? They can either take on a role or they can... Um, you know, choose to live this lifestyle 24-7. And it's such a, there's such a vast array of of people in this online community. Um, some people um, only go on just so they can read about stuff. Some people go on so they can connect with people and go to events and um, and really be involved with people on a personal level. Um, some people go on um, to fulfill their fantasies. Um, I mean, there's some people, you know, just want an education and then they're done. Um, and you know, there's, there's a whole BDSM community. Um, but then there's pansexuality and asexuality and, um, um, uh, all, all kinds of, different kinds of sexuality and um, kinksters, which is something completely different from what we think of as the traditional doms and dominatrix and um, submissives and that sort of thing. So it's just a really big, huge community, and you can find people who are like-minded, who are looking for the same thing that you are, whether it's um, you are seeking to be thought of as what they call a little where you dress up in a diaper and somebody mm-hmm. takes care of you and um, and maybe even like feeds you from a bottle and changes your diaper to somebody who um, laces up your back with needles and ribbon ribbons and um, and your your joy is the pain in the needles being inserted I mean it's just this huge array of people looking for all types of gratification. Yeah, it's it's a very um it's a very inclusive 
kind of community from what I have seen just with um, it being a very non-judgmental space. Um, I, a lot of people would call it alternative sexuality kind of community, although I don't think it's an alternative. I think it's just we, we all sit on a spectrum of sexuality, and I think that's, you know, what happens. But um, kind of kind of that community that really openly discusses these things tends to be really inclusive um, <laughs> and really non-judgmental of people. I mean, you you might go, okay, like being a little is not my thing. Like I'm not going to be in a diaper, but it's not. There, there's not really um, a degrading sense about it because then you just don't enter those communities or, you know, seek out that stuff because that's not what you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the interesting things that I've found. Um, back in April in Milwaukee, um, the Toolshed Toys did a really great week-long um, kind of education series about sex and sexuality, which was just amazing. Um, and it was run by Lucky Tomazic, which is, um, she's their head sex education coordinator over there. Okay. And, oh, she's fantastic. She has lupus. Um and she actually spoke at the arthritis introspective gathering in 2015 that was held in Milwaukee. Um, and, and this whole idea of chronic sex kind of, kind of was spurred on by her conversation with those of us that were in her session about sex and sexuality with illness and all of these things that, you know, I, a lot of it I knew and I was just surprised by how many other people in the room um, you know, of varying ages, didn't quite know yet. Um, but I'm a sex geek, so, you know, I know some of these things. <laughs> and, um, so this week-long thing, they had a healthcare practitioner day, which unfortunately was not very well attended by um, specialists, general practitioners, mm-hmm. definitely. But, um, you know, she tried to pull in some rheumatologists in the area, and they didn't make it, which is kind of a bummer. Um but they had one of the things I really liked was they had um, Sophia Chase, who is an MPH, um, a sex educator, and also owns Chicago Dungeon Rentals. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very into the BDSM community. She's a dominatrix, um, and she also happens to have lupus. And so she was talking about um, she ran a session on how to give health care for people who are into kink and BDSM because Mm -hmm. sometimes there are bruises, sometimes there are cuts, sometimes there are ligature marks. And so oftentimes, you know, those can be signs of abuse. And so it's really trying to give healthcare practitioners the tools to differentiate between an abusive relationship and, you know, a relationship where both consenting adults are, open and willing to try these things and enjoy them. And yes, there is pain, but it's not um, unwanted pain, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And she was talking about just how interesting it is to her, how many people with chronic pain causing conditions like lupus, like, you know, other forms of autoimmune arthritis or multiple sclerosis or, or a vast variety of things. Um, actually get very into um, BDSM portions that do cause pain because it can be 
a healing thing to know that pain is coming, to know that it's going to end, to know that you're going to have that time period afterwards of of care from um, whoever the dominatrix may be in the situation. And, um, you know, it, it can also be very uh, powerful for those of us who have been through abuse and PTSD causing situations because we can kind of relive those in a very structured and safe environment and mm-hmm. use it almost as therapy to get past those things. And I really, but before that session, before meeting Sophia, I really had never um, known that much about BDSM and that community. I mean, I knew that it wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> that that is very obviously an abusive relationship. Please do not model your relationship after that or the one in Twilight. Or <laughs> right, right. But uh, I thought that was very interesting to me, um, just how many of us with pain kind of are interested in these kinds of pain-causing activities because of how we're somehow in control of that pain. Absolutely. Just, yep. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It is a way for us to um, take control over something that we normally don't have any control over whatsoever. Um, because we certainly don't have control over how um, doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers interact with us. And we can certainly have a lot more control over um, who we interact with and how how the scene plays out with us you know, when we're in a BDSM um, relationship or whatever. So um, that's definitely different. Um, So I'm just, I'm actually in my FetLife profile right now because I still have it up. I don't, (laughs) I don't have it um, active right now because um, I am not very mobile right now. Um, Mm. But um, some of the groups are like, there's one that's very large. It's called Kink and Disability. Um, there's another one, Disabled People and Those Who Like Disabled People, um, BDSM and Disabilities. Um, there's one here, let's see. Uh, there's Diapered and Disabled. That one has 256 members. Wow. <laughs> um, what was another one? Um, I think there was one with, like, Sorry, I'm a little bit slow here, but I'm looking for one. Oh, there's a there's a lot in Arizona, which um, which is where I was living for 12 years. Um, I you know had no idea that people were so kinky in Arizona, but you know, <laughs> kind of the wild west out there. I'm telling you, you um, know, it is it's very interesting. Uh, a lot of groups in Arizona and um, southern Utah. <laughs> Yeah, Utah, yeah. very repressed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, there's even a group for um, wheelchair um, lovers, uh, oh. you know, on, on that life. Yeah, so um, people who are in wheelchairs and then people who love people who are in wheelchairs. So really, really diverse loves out there. So, yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, and the reason I had joined up with that life was because um, 
gosh, I think it was 2011. I was having a really hard time with dating because um, 14 years ago, I lost all of my hair. And it's not the reason why I'm having health problems. Um, I don't have cancer. It's just alopecia, universalis. I don't have a lick of hair anywhere in my body. Um, except every once in a while, I'll actually grow some eyebrows or eyelashes back, but, you know, usually it takes a hike. So men are really, really, really uncomfortable with that. Um, and my average is if I go out on dates with 50 different men, usually out of the 50, three are okay with it, and out of those three, two usually have bipolar disorder, and one has a bald fetish. So Interesting. Yeah. So um, one of my friends had suggested, why don't you go on set life and maybe you'll find some men who are totally okay with your baldness and, you know, won't give you such a hard time. So that was how I had discovered set life and all of the um, intricacies of um, the BDSM community and stuff. So there's actually some things that I'm into besides just being an object of desire as a bald woman. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would is, imagine that that's not an easy um, kind of road to navigate. It's not. It. I mean, even that is weird. It's so weird being a bald woman in fat life because I get so many marriage proposals. <laughs> Mm, yeah, like the devotee type people. <laughs> yes. And then men from all over the world are like, I just want to shave you. And I said, okay, I don't have anything to shave. And they're like, it's okay. I just want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> they just want, you know, they just want to go through the action of it. So they want to feel like they made you that hairless. <laughs> right. Leak like a seal, yes. <laughs> it's so strange, strange. And, um, oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, The again, the marriage proposals. Um, I've had so many men write me letters and say that they, you know, just want to um, live with me and, and make me their queen and, and worship my head and, and do all kinds of nasty things to my head and, <laughs> it, got, it, it sounded okay like until you got to the head part and then I was like hmm. <laughs> I'm not really comfortable with the whole make me their queen type of thing either I'm not really into like putting me on a pedestal like anybody yeah. wants me to put yeah it's, that's not a comfortable place to be either because inevitably I'm I'm going to be human so Right, and that fall from a pedestal is not very comfortable, so. Right. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. so you talked a little bit about kind of online dating with that life. What was, and I know you talked a little bit before about um, kind of your experience dating before Fet Life, but kind of what in general have you found with the online dating community, world, whatever, about you know, kind of navigating it as someone who is bald, someone who does have chronic illnesses and, and mobility issues, and how how has that impacted um, kind of your, your self-esteem or how you approach relationships in general? 
Um, you know, that's been really difficult, too. Um, I was living with a boyfriend at the time when I lost most of my hair. Um, so he was with me during the process. And um, when I started losing it, it was falling out in big clumps. And at first, he asked me why I wasn't doing enough to try to keep it. And so I made him go with me to an appointment where the dermatologist was giving me the shots in my head. And I got about 75 shots. And after that, he never asked me again, you know, why I wasn't doing enough. Um, But that relationship obviously didn't last. And so Mm -hmm. after that, I had to start dating as a bald woman. And I found out that um, there was never a good time for me to tell somebody that I didn't have hair. Um, Men would come up with these excuses like, I should have told them, before we went on a first date, I should have told them by the third date, I should have told them by the sixth date, you know, I should have told them by, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is really that they never would have been okay with it. So, right. yeah. Um, but like I said, you know, the guys, the three out of the 50 that are always okay with it are the two who are bipolar and the one who has a fetish. So that's an issue because, um, as, as difficult as it is um, for somebody to have a mental illness, um, it's also difficult for me because I'm already navigating all my health stuff. And mm-hmm. so if I'm dating somebody who has um, a mental health issue that, that isn't being controlled well with medication and um, and they're not taking care of themselves, then it's, you know, it's not, it's just not easy. Yeah, it it causes more stress for, I'd imagine, both of you, you know, um, but especially for you, dealing with your own health care issues and, you know, kind of trying to not necessarily mother another person, but, but to try to get them to where they're getting the right care for themselves and taking care of themselves the right way, and that is a very difficult situation to be in because, you know, as most of us with chronic illnesses or disabilities know, stress can be a great giant factor in how well we're doing. And so the more stressed we are, the more we tend to feel like crap. <laughs> so. Right. Right. And, you know, if you're in chronic pain, um, absolutely positively, you are also probably dealing with depression yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially in the past couple of years, you know, that's that's been um, something that's been kind of a big factor for me. So, um, my dating has changed, too. Before, I kind of could figure out how to navigate everything because of my fibromyalgia. I kind of knew, like, what I had to do to make sure that I would be okay. Like, I would rest more and um, I would know when I would hit my wall or whatever. Everybody has, mm-hmm. has like, a wall of fatigue that they know is coming. Um, if you know how to pay attention to your body and you know what's going to drain you. So I kind of, you know, really knew how to read my body. But um, in these past six years that I've I've been really, really super sick, um, it's been really challenging and now that the doctors have decided to stop operating on me, um, I'm in bed a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, oh, man, 
Um, so obviously everybody who listens to your podcast isn't going to know what's happening with me, but um, what's wrong with me now is that I, back in 2010, I started having problems with vertigo and fatigue and facial droop and um, all these crazy things were happening with me and nobody could tell why. And after about a year um, of me being stuck in bed um, and not being able to function, I finally found a doctor who put in a shunt to drain off CSF or cerebral spinal fluid from my brain. Mm -hmm. And it was like I finally got my life back. But then I started having problems with the shunts and they would clog and I started having all these allergic reactions to them. So I had 10 surgeries in less than four years. And after the 10th surgery, the doctor said, forget it. I'm not working on you anymore. Um, We have to figure out what you have because we still don't know what you have. We don't know why this fluid is building up and why you're having all these symptoms. So um, when he said he was going to stop operating on me, then I had to stop working because when I'm upright, the fluid hangs out around my brainstem and presses on all these nerves and also my brainstem. And so um, I can't open my eyes all the way, and I can't walk very well. But when I'm laying down flat, I can see just fine because the fluid moves away from what it's pressing on. Mm -hmm. So dating (laughs) is kind of weird because I can say to my dates, well, you know, if I lay down for like four or five hours, then I might have a good hour where I can be upright before I have to... Um, turn into Quasimodo and my face becomes paralyzed and I can't open my eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I also walk with a cane and, you know, all this crazy stuff. And um, it, it's so weird to me because my mom was worried about me being by myself as a disabled person and walking down the street and she'd be like, oh my God, you're such a target something bad is going to happen to you. And I I feel like I feel like as soon as I pick up my cane, I have like an invisible cloak. Mm-hmm. I turn invisible and undesirable as soon as I have my cane. Yeah. It's um it's it's a common feeling, you know. I um had to use a cane for a really long time off and on, but more on than I would like to admit, um, or should have been more on than <laughs> I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, I got around it by, I got a, like a house replica cane, the one he had with the flames on it. And I was like, okay, this is badass. I could do this. And, um, I actually, Hugh Laurie, by the way, as a, as a small tangent is an amazing blues musician. Yes. Uh, Amazing, and I went to a concert of his in Milwaukee, um, and brought the cane not because I needed it, but because I was like, "Hey, maybe he'll see it and he'll be like, oh, cane." And he didn't see it, but um, <laughs> you know, it was pretty awesome still, and I was glad I brought it because I did at the end of the day need it. Um, but you know, I it's it's very difficult because that's either all people see or it does make you invisible, and so people will you know almost run into you because they're trying so hard to, you know, not stare. Or <laughs> or you get people who are like, oh, my God, your cane's so cute. Where did you get it? I want one. And it's like, you really don't need one. Like, you I, I probably, you know, 
three out of five people who asked me about my cane did not need one. And, you know, maybe they were trying to be nice or something, but it's like, uh, I don't know. It was just, it's just awkward, I think, for everyone involved. And it's something that we don't talk about, you know, like little kids will point out stuff and be like, why does she have a cane? And it's like, you know, parents will be like, oh, no, we don't, we don't talk about those things. Like, right. Well, we should. We need to. Because when you get to be 30, 40 years old and you're having to use a cane and people are, you know, not being very kind about it, it just, you know, it it just furthers the stigma associated with needing to use assistive devices in general. Right. And, you know, that brings up another conversation that I had with one of my friends that I'm going to see later this week. Um, she went out to stay with her sister because her sister was actually in the hospital um, because of problems with her back. And so she stayed with her niece and nephew, who I think are 15 and 8. And mm-hmm. she was going on and on about saying how um, her niece and nephew really shouldn't have had to see her sister sick and shouldn't have had to help out with her sister and, you know, should have just been able to to think that everything was okay and and I said, well, no, 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 wait a second. You know, they should understand that any of us can be sick at any time and should know how to handle it if it does happen because um, it might happen to their parents again or it might happen to them, and they have to know what they can do. Mm-hmm. Or, or you, you know, know, at the very least, it might happen to a friend, and then they need to know, you know, what's okay to say, what's not okay to say, how to approach the situation, you know, in in an age-appropriate way without, like, freaking out. Right. Yep. And my friend was upset that the 8-year-old knew how to give his mom her pills and what time and whatever. And I said, well, that's actually really responsible. I mean, you know, that's not a bad thing for him to know how to... um, to read the label and to know how much she gets and, and what time and, you know, that's that's just part of what she's going through right now. Why shouldn't he be involved? <laughs> I just yeah. I don't understand that, that way of thinking. It's so interesting. Like, I know so many moms who have rheumatic conditions or things like that where they do have to take shots every week. Um in particular, I have a friend named Stacy who lives in California, and her daughter Jordan is actually has juvenile arthritis too. And so, you know, they, it's kind of the girls are sick, and the, you know, the dad and and the son aren't. And the dad works a lot, you know, so that Stacy can be home because she just isn't where she can work right now. And with Jordan being sick too and needing to go to all her appointments, you know, it just makes sense for their family. Um, But Matt, the son is a badass. Like he will give Stacy her shots. He will give Jordan her shots. Like he, he has no qualms about, you know, well, they need to take their medicine and if their hands aren't well enough to do this, I will do it. Or if it needs to be done in the back of their arm where they can't reach, I will do it. And he is just, You know, he's he's going into junior high, I think. Uh yeah. their school year just started, which is weird. But yeah. um <laughs> you know, it's and he's been doing this for a couple of years now and it's just I think it's just a great example of in general kind of that pediatric to adult transition where 
if, if a kid was on their own medications, you know, like this is the age where they would need to be knowing what medications they are, knowing the doses, things like that, so that they can take over their own health care. And Matt is, you know, setting himself up to be just a badass caregiver in general and a, and a really good person because of how he handles and helps with it. And I think it just, it highlights when, wh- whether it's in a family situation or relationship situation or friends, you know, like, how much better we do in general with our lives when we have other people there to help who are willing to step up and do it too, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, they're like my favorite family. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, enough about talking about cute kids. (laughs) On the Chronic Sex Podcast, it's fine. (laughs) So... You know, I know that when you were younger, you were looking at being a sex educator. Yeah. Um What what was that kind of like? Like, did you explore it? Um, and and what kind of were your thoughts about not um, getting to do that after all? Well, um, if I could, if I could tell you why. I was thinking that way. Um, my mom was my mom was really naive about sex. Um, mm-hmm. She grew up in a family of of four girls and four boys on a farm in a tiny little town in Minnesota, and um, they never ever talked about sex, even mm-hmm. though um, grandma and grandpa were obviously very active. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they were just trying to populate the farm so they could have right. you know farm hands. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and unfortunately, all the girls, um, besides the oldest girl, because um, the oldest girl and the oldest boy were the only ones that were paid attention to. And so they were married, married off very early, and they started their families very early. The rest of the kids were kind of ignored. And so they were mm-hmm. kind of left on their own to figure everything out. And so the the other three girls... Um, had kids very young, didn't really know what they were doing. Um, all of them ended up being divorced and kind of um, still not not very educated on parenthood and reproduction and how to talk to their, to their own kids about sex and healthy boundaries and stuff like that. And so um, when I was growing up, we still really didn't talk about sex and healthy boundaries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the other end of the spectrum, um, my mom and my dad divorced when I was very young. I was two and a half years old. And so my dad's house was the exact opposite. It was very inappropriate. Like there were no boundaries. Um, dad had porno mags laying around the house. We knew where my stepmom's vibrators were. Um, Dad had pornos, um, like videotapes, laying around. Like, I think the first time I watched a porno was when I was nine. Um, I'm definitely not letting my mother listen to this, by the way. (laughs) No. (laughs) Good move. It's going to be another bypass. But, (laughs) um, you know, so I I really felt like... um, 
rather than end up in the same situation that my mom and my aunts did, I wanted to, first of all, not have sex until I could make my own decisions as an adult without having to inform my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to wait until I was 19 years old to have sex. And that way I didn't have to get any signatures in order to do anything. And that included have an abortion or go to any clinic to get treated for anything. So right. all of the choices were my own. Um, but then I also had this class at the college that I went to, which is Moorhead State up across the river from Fargo. And it was supposed to be like in this special ed building, which I didn't understand at all. But (laughs) um, it was the best class that I had the entire time that I was there. And it was the sex ed class. And we um, made diagrams and um, we had these groups that we were broken into that we had discussions every week that we had to tape for the instructor and my group was like this younger guy and me and this middle-aged woman, and we talked about everything. And I just thought it was really fascinating. And I think that's what really got me going was like having this class and talking about this stuff. Um, I felt like I felt like I I really didn't want to be stuck in the same place as my mother and this older woman who was now in my group at college, you know, I didn't want to repeat the same things that they had done with their lives and not be educated and not be able to speak up about things that happened, um, including, um, uh, like, sexual violence and, um, you know, misinformation and stuff like that. So, um, but then, you know, Life just kind of happens. Um, I didn't continue with school at that time, and I chose instead to um, travel and move around the U.S., and so that was why I didn't continue on with that. But I still remain the person who everybody goes to for the crazy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly, it's like the best role to serve, though. (laughs) From one crazy shit person to another, it's just... Uh, there's, it's it's like it's not gossip because it's not bad and you don't share those things with other people, but it's just I don't know. I really think it is. It does have to do with that vulnerability and knowing that somebody trusts you so much to tell you these things or ask you these things. Because as much as we as a society like to pretend that we are super open with sex, we're not. Um, you know, we will use a messy hamburger and Paris Hilton barely clothed to sell such hamburger. And, you know, but we can't have comprehensive sexual education in our high schools, which is just baloney. It's baloney. Um, I have more words for it than that. And I guess this is an explicit podcast, so it's not like I can't say bullshit, but, you know. (laughs) I just, so I, when I was, when I was growing up, I was homeschooled for a long time. Um, And by homeschooled, you know, you know the the history with my mother and how there was a lot of neglect and and verbal and emotional abuse on my part. And, um, you know, after a little while, she decided she was kind of 
done teaching me. And we're talking like, I was a month into first grade when she pulled me out. And um, probably within two months, she was done really teaching me stuff, like on a regular basis. Um, So I got to the point where I had to teach myself a lot, which, you know, ends up serving me well now that I am working on my master's and things like that. Like I was an overachiever in school because I had that like, I don't know, self-discipline and the research skills and things like that to be able to look stuff up on my own and, (laughs) you know, those kinds of things. And so, so on that end, I liked it. But, um, on the other end, like I didn't get much sex ed until, um, I was in eighth grade when I started back to school finally. And I was in the science class with my, my male science teacher's name was Courtney. He's like, his family was Italian and they thought it was like a badass name. So they named him Courtney, which was just my favorite. And his class was awesome anyway. It was like my homeroom class. And it was right after PE, so it was like you go and do all this bull crap moving around or sitting out as I did a lot and then <laughs> go <laughs> learn about science. Um and we had um it was about a week of, of sex education and it was just this gal from Planned Parenthood came in and she told some of the funniest uh, stories from a sex educator perspective, like, well, here's why I don't try to have people put condoms on bananas, because bananas have those pokey spots, and then they rip the condom, and there's, like, spermicide goes everywhere. Like, <laughs> you know, it, like, her personality is so similar to how mine has ended up. And I wish I knew who she was so that I could go back and thank her. But because of that, it really set me on kind of this whole sex education, sex positive thing that I've done for a lot longer than I want to do the math for since eighth grade. Um, and, you know, I I did become that person who oh, my God, like, I need to go to Planned Parenthood and get tested. Like, will you come with me? Or, um, you know, I need to go get condoms. Where do I get condoms? I don't understand. Or, um, (laughs) you know about HIV. Like, can I get it from kissing somebody who has HIV? Like, no, honey. Like, (laughs) you're okay. Um, You know, just that person who always had condoms in her locker and all that stuff. Um, And in high school... We had to write this, I was a part of an international baccalaureate subsection of my school, so basically we took international baccalaureate tests, which is, it's basically um, AP, but it's accepted in So I had to write like this 30-page paper in high school, and we got to choose um, what we were writing about, so that was cool. So I chose... And I I tried to stick to many topics in this paper, so I didn't end up getting a good grade on it because I wanted to cover everything. But <laughs> but I I the two topics were basically like compare and contrast sexual education in like the top three European countries, one of which is the Netherlands because they're badass, yeah. and and the U.S. Um, and then the other was how sex in the media is handled in both. 
So, yeah, it was, it was, I tried to do way too much with that paper, and I didn't get a great grade on it, but, you know, it's fine. Um, And it just, like, I volunteered really heavily for Planned Parenthood during that time so that I could have access to a lot of their materials, and just, it was so eye-opening to see how other countries handle sex and sexuality in a much more open but yet also age-appropriate way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It was just so surprising. Um, and I try to not get into, like, conspiracy theory-sounding stuff, but it just... I think it just goes to show how how much of our um, society is run by people who would prefer to not talk about sex because their money comes from people not talking about sex and, you know, <laughs> covertly signing up for porn websites <laughs> and Ashley totally. Madison. And <laughs> totally. <sighs> it's so bad. Well, you it's know what's so disturbing is that um, for about five years, my mom and stepdad had moved us up from Minneapolis to this tiny little town of 300 people. And so suddenly... I was going to a very small school, mm. and I think there were about 71 people in my class, so, you know, very small. And so in the eighth grade, I had um, a, a week's worth of sex ed, but it wasn't anywhere close to what you had. Um, we had an abstinence-only program, and I think I was in, gosh, 10th grade maybe, and 11 girls from this class of 71 got pregnant. And they were basically in competition with each other. Oh, jeez. Right. You know, to see, like, everybody wanted to get pregnant at the same time. And, you know, it was just, it was crazy. And then um, two of the girls, two of the 11, ended up having two kids by the time they graduated. Um, I didn't end up graduating from that school, but it was really disturbing. And then one of the girls had three kids by the time she was 20. And the only reason I knew that was because I was working in a hospital where she came in to have kid number three. When I was 20 years old, um, I happened to have to walk her up to the maternity ward. And so it was just, it was really, really disturbing to me that, um, you know, here's these 11 girls out of 71 kids who are pregnant by the time they're 15 or 16 years old. And the school is patting themselves on the back saying, yeah, we have a really good sex ed program. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, I I wish you could see my face right now, dude. Um, <laughs> I, like, I can't. My brain cannot comprehend this. Like, it happens a lot more often than we would like to admit, but it just, what? <laughs> Right. And, yeah, and when we moved up there, my father, who, you know, who was also, who was very sexually open um, and obviously not a very good on the other end of the spectrum either, he was actually afraid that my sister and I were going to end up pregnant just like everybody else because he knew what we were moving into. Um, okay. But obviously he wasn't the best judge either because my mom had moved down to Minneapolis and immediately became pregnant with my older sister at a very young age. So um, none of the situations were good. And I don't think the, uh, I don't, 
there is no easy answer, but it certainly isn't to um, give us an education saying don't have sex um, right. while the kids are all having sex <laughs> yeah, it's, and getting um, pregnant. And it's I think we don't start the sexual education process early enough. Um, you know, we don't talk about it very much to begin with, but, you know, there are when when I was volunteering with Planned Parenthood, there ended up being a breakout um, about three hours away of a bunch of fifth graders that all wound up with herpes in their mouth um, because they had been exposed to things and started to act upon those things together. And it was just, you know, um, with with how often kids are exposed to sexual abuse and assault themselves or witnessing that or um, watching TV shows they shouldn't be watching because parents are inattentive or don't care or what have you. I just, we have got to do something different than allowing those kinds of things to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for me... You know, growing up in the home I grew up in, there wasn't much as far as sex ed really went until I was in eighth grade. Um, You know, I had gone through a period of molestation, and so I obviously knew part of sex, um, you know, by the time I was six. And it was, it was just interesting. Um, My mother and grandmother had both gone through molestation themselves and and other forms of sexual violence and so um i you know looking back i always would have assumed that they would have had more of a conversation with us when we were younger about um what sex is what sex isn't what it's supposed to be those kinds of things um and basically all i got was the talk of like well no, no, you know, if you show me mine, I'll show you yours kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not, that's not sufficient, even at six, seven years old. That's, that's not sufficient. Um, so, yeah, we got to do something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we do, but something. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I can't remember, I think it was, like, in Sweden where they were showing um, how kids are introduced to sex ed and how they talk about respect and love and and being close to people and stuff like that. And, and the kids are like, yeah, this is how you talk about love to other people. And I'm like, oh, my God, how is it mm-hmm. these kids can talk about this, but this 45-year-old man can't talk about, um, you know, his feelings, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so interesting, too, I think, when you look at the LGBTQIA plus population um, in respect to kids, kids are much more open to that. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. like you have two dads. They love each other. Sweet. Like, I wish I had two dads, you know, and it's not it's not like this. Oh, you're icky. It's. I think it's just a sign of how we are taught these prejudices. We are taught them from our families, from 
um, other people around us from our society. And it's, you know, and that, that goes with respect to everything, um, you know, disability discrimination, um, racism, sexism, all of that is really taught. Um, there are definitely systematic components to those things. <laughs> and that's how we learn them as children. But um, yeah, it's just so interesting to me how how everything within the social justice realm is really interconnected. Um, and that's why things are like intersectionality are so important. Um, you know, like the bulk of what I do is I talk about how those of us with chronic illnesses and disabilities are discriminated against or can't get accommodations we need or quality of life things that people don't talk about like this. Um, but, <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much more to it too. There's, there's racism that's involved, like people of color who have chronic pain illnesses, one are diagnosed much slower Two often can't get the treatment they need. And three um, have much lower um, like prescriptions for pain control medications than their white counterparts. Um, mm -hmm. and it just, you know, and, and that goes double for women who are people of color. Um, and it's just so interesting. Like, I think that's part of why when we talk about discrimination and things like that, we have to talk about it as a whole, um, and really focus on, yes, there's ableism. There's also racism and sexism embedded in ableism and, and really address how do we fight it all at the same time. Because getting rid of one, even if it was, you know, mostly gone, does not necessarily affect um, people who deal with the other issues. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, I have a couple more stories. <laughs> um, okay. So I was at the Irish Fair this weekend, Um uh, it, it's already like big crowds are already a, a big challenge for me. A lot of walking is a huge challenge. Um, we were sitting down at the end of like our little two hour, two, two hour tour of the Irish festival in St. Paul, which is already like a big, big thing. Um, mm -hmm. so I was getting kind of tired. I had my cane resting next to me and I just kind of hit it with my elbow and it fell down on the ground and I was picking it up. And I guess this guy was walking past. And he had reached down to pick it up. And instead of talking to me, he said it to my boyfriend. He was like, oh, I was going to get that for her. And, uh. I was, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, first of all, you can say that to me, you know. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Second of all, it's okay, buddy. I got it. <laughs> <sighs> there's there's so much infantilization it's like especially those of us who are women with a disability it's like we're we are fragile little butterflies and <laughs> we must right. be protected and talked to like we're children and which the way we talk to children isn't okay either but like you know <laughs> just no like i'm right here you can talk to me without like using your high sweetie high voice and like, 
And by the way, buddy, I can pick up my canes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I can do that. It's okay. (laughs) Right. I'm not struggling or flailing my arms or any of that. Um, I got it. (laughs) But another thing that happens with my friend who is flying up here from Phoenix, and I'll see her on Friday, is that I'm going to have to have a serious conversation with her. Um, Every time that I talk to her on the phone, she says, Hi, are you better? It, uh, it, it drives, that was like a guttural reaction. <laughs> <laughs> it drives me nuts because every time I've talked to her, um, you know, I can't, I can't wear my poker face anymore. And obviously, we can't see each other on the phone. But um, I just pause and I'm like, better than what? You know. <laughs> And at one point I said to her, now, do you talk to your dad this way because he has diabetes? Did he go to bed on a Tuesday night and then you call him on Wednesday morning and do you say, hi, dad, are you better? You know? (laughs) No. Um, What is wrong with you? (laughs) And that's, you know, that's all part of the whole ableism thing, too. Um. I don't have a cold. It's not going to go away in 10 days or five days um, or on anybody's timeline. Unless I call her up and tell her that I am cured, I am the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. For for future reference, for anyone listening, proper things to ask would be, how are you feeling? As long as you actually give a shit about the answer and you're not doing it to be polite. Or... What's up? I I like what's up because, like, it gives me the opportunity to go, oh, you know, like, I'm recording podcast calls today and I'm so excited. Or, you know, if I'm feeling bummed out, I can be like, well, fucking A, I've got a cold and I'm stuffing my mouth full of ludens as I'm talking to people because I don't like real cough drops. I like candy. And (laughs) (laughs) I get, like, those wild cherry ludens cough drops that are, you know. (laughs) My great-grandma had them all the time. She had MS and diabetes, and so she, like, she would get really dry mouth because of both of those, so she just had, like, her pockets were full of ludens and, like, (laughs) and, like, tissues and (laughs) lip balms. (laughs) It's like, I feel like I'm turning into her, like, (laughs) except I just have a bag full of ludens. Uh, I'll have to put a picture up on Facebook so you can see (laughs) my basket (laughs) full of ludens. And I am an addict of the strawberry Walgreens cough drops because I have to take um, four different medications for just allergies because um, mm-hmm. I have the super allergies. <sighs> yeah. Don't you wish those actually came with, like, some sort of superpower other than, like, super mucus? Like, <laughs> <laughs> super sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so we've done this, the test for Sjogren's for me, which have come back negative. Although I know that that can be a common occurrence and that, you know, like a lip biopsy would be the next way to go, <laughs> um, which I'm not a fan of those. So Mm-mm. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. But like, it's so interesting. A lot of those things for dry mouth, like I'm allergic to um, 
kind of the the chemical versions of phenylalanine. So like when you see warnings on gum or something where it's like phenylketonerotics or whatever, like warning this contains phenylalanine, like I'm one of those people that generally has to avoid those things. Like it's a naturally occurring thing, but like for some reason the chemical version that's manufactured, like I just can't do. So it's like I can't have Paul's cough drops. I can't have like these cough drops or those cough drops because they all have fake sugar, which all has that in it. And it's just like, oh, guys, crazy. And then, like, at one point, I wrote, like, a letter to Wrigley because they had (laughs) Big Red was the only one that didn't have that in it. And then all of a sudden it did. And so I wrote them a letter. I was like, God damn it. I need my big red cinnamon. Cinnamon, you know, like, turns your brain on and it makes you smarter. And I'm in college and I need this. And <laughs> their response was to send me, like, a, a coupon for, guess what? Free gum. <laughs> so, that's not, that was the opposite, guys. Like, do you have some not fake sugar ones in the back somewhere. Can you just send me like a pallet? <laughs> oh man. And I was just oh. like, hey guys, come on. Can can we just can we just read can we read this? Let's just read it together. <laughs> it was oh, like man. I gave it and he used it to get gum, so it was fine, but <laughs> just uh some of those kinds of things too where you're like you write to companies like I, I had a problem with an airline last year where they didn't um catch that I needed a, a wheelchair and so by the time I got to security I was like no I can't do this and, like, I tried to talk to the TSA people that were right there, like, we can't do anything for you. I was like, you have walkie-talkies. Like, do you guys not all use the same walkie-talkies? Like, can't you just switch the channel and, like, ask them? And, no, they couldn't do that. And they couldn't pick up a phone that was right there. <laughs> they just, just were like, well, just walk back down and, and get out. I was like, really? I'm not, I'm not walking so I can go get a wheelchair. Like, that's not happening. So, yeah, and so then, like, when I, like, talked to the airline about this, um, they are like, well, since there's not really a record of interaction between you and, like, the people at the check-in gate, there's not really a way we can verify what you're saying. And I just wanted to be like, verify? Like, if you could just say, like, there's not a way, like, we don't have any records of the interactions between you guys, so there's not much we can do on our end. Like, that's okay. I would get that, but, like, verify, like, what, like, like I'm lying that I didn't get my wheelchair. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Needless to say, I have flown that airline again, and they're much better about it, But, but that same trip last year, they, like... Checked. I checked my bag, and they like lost it. And then, and then when they brought it back to my house, like it was, it was not usable anymore. There were mm. rips 
and tears and it was just like one of the pockets was almost ripped off and I like I luckily didn't have anything in those pockets but just like really guys and you know to go on the tangent that's why I don't check my bags anymore (laughs) (laughs) carry on (laughs) you know oh man yeah it's bad it's really bad. And you think yeah. it's not going to be bad. <laughs> and then it happens. Well, now, and you're just... Oh. Yeah. Well, it's really tough for me to fly because um, since my shunt isn't working, I um, I get really bad um, pressure in my head because the, mm-hmm. the CSF builds up and it presses on my eyes and stuff like that. So I can't see. Um, about 80% of my vision is lost. So... I can't do a whole lot, so I'm kind of at people's mercy. And yeah. um, so when I was moving up here, my brother-in-law was driving my car up from Arizona, and so I was all by myself at the airport, and it was just, oh, God, it was such a mess. Um, they they couldn't figure out, like, how to get me from the plane to the taxis. Um, the Minneapolis airport is kind of spread out and you have to go through a bunch of stuff and like there was, I don't know, some construction and something else. And what they did was they took me from the gate to this area, like a drop-off point, and the mm-hmm. cart couldn't go any further than that. Um, so they took me to this drop-off point and then it took like another hour for a volunteer to come over and get me to an elevator to take me down to the taxis. It was just ah. insane. And I was sitting on the airplane for like a good 30 minutes because nobody could figure out how to get me from the airplane to like a cart. It was just crazy. Oh, my God. That yeah. is just intense. Um it's crazy. It's, it's amazing, too, how different um, airports in general handle some of these accessibility things. Um, mm-hmm. Like the airport I was at last year was Orlando International, and you would think, like... With all the people coming into Orlando, because I have flown in there for work. Um, I used to be a traveling trainer, and as somebody who used to run through, through airports on heels, it's a totally different experience than somebody who has to go in on a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Completely. It is. It's it's so interesting. Um, and then you get people like Britt Johnson, the Hurt Blogger, often encounters people who don't believe she's disabled because she's a cutie. Yeah. Like, like what? Like, we can't be cute. And then, <laughs> you know, because she's tall and she's thin and she, if you don't know any better, she looks healthy. So she's she's had to take two often wearing, like, her arthritis gear when she flies and things like that and, and braces, even if she doesn't necessarily need them that day for whatever joint because, you know, otherwise we're liars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, no, like, I promise. The last thing I actually want to do is pre-board your plane. Like, I want to be able to do it normal like everybody else, but, uh, you know. I can't. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which actually, it's interesting. Um, 
So I was just at the Juvenile Arthritis Conference East in Philly, and um, we got back yesterday. And I was wearing my like Kids Get Arthritis 2 t-shirt. And it's the cutest little like baseball shirt. I love it. And um, <laughs> we were standing to go through like security. And one of the security guards read my shirt and he was like, what? I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know kids get that too. And I was like, yeah, like it's, you know, I have it. It's, it's fairly common. And he was like, oh, like what, what is it like? Is it just like achy joints or do they get swollen? And like, clearly this guy already knew like kind of some of stuff, right? And, uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's really, it's autoimmune. So it's more like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis than like osteoarthritis or osteoporosis. Like there's swelling and fevers and organ involvement and things like that. And he was like, wow, like I had no idea. And like, you know, gave him some stats. And then at the end, like, he, like, looked me in the eyes, and it was, like, a really sincere thing. He's like, oh, well, like, how are you doing with it? Like, Aww. how, you know. And I was just like, oh, sweetie pie, I wish I could give you a hug right now. <sighs> and, you know, Aww. I was like, well, you know, it's under control for the most part right now. And he's like, well, good, I'm, I'm glad, like, you know, God bless you type thing. And then he, like, stood down at, at the security thing where we were going through. And it almost seemed like he was waiting for us to go through security just in case, like, we had any issues. And it was just, it was, like, the sweetest <laughs> experience I've ever had with, like, anybody at the airport. Um, A nice human interaction. <laughs> right? Yeah. At the Philly airport, which, like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, just just to juxtapose that, the guy who actually was running the screening machine was, like, yelling at people to, like, make sure they kept their stuff by them as they were, like, trying to put stuff in the bins unless they wanted to see their stuff go on eBay or let go or... <laughs> it was just, like, being You're a... You're gonna die. It's <laughs> like... I just talked to the nicest man, and you're being so snarky. Like, I just can't handle this today. <laughs> so I'd imagine that you don't get the opportunity to travel very much anymore because of the need to lay down so much. Right. Um, yeah, that's a total departure from most of my life because I've actually traveled to 36 states um in uh, traveling to me is in my car like i've you know touched my foot to the ground not like yeah. i've just been in the airport um so yeah 36 states i also have my passports that i've actively used in other countries not just canada and mexico dang <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so it's really it's difficult for me because um I I am a gypsy at heart. Um, I did like to move around the U.S. I did like to pick what I was going to do rather than have my life dictated by, you know, me having to lay down. Um, so it's been really difficult for me to, oh, man, to be stuck in bed. Um, and also to have to give up driving. 
That's yeah. been a really tough one because it's, you know, the timing isn't within my control. I really had to learn to be okay with um, others. First of all, driving. Oh, my God. <laughs> I started taking pictures of the cab drivers and the short bus drivers and putting it on Instagram. I love that, were, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they're crazy. They're all crazy. <laughs> Just nuts. And the cab drivers are like, um, the rules of the road don't apply to us. The cops leave us alone, and we do whatever we want to. So, yeah. um, yes, so it makes for some really wild rides. Um, the short bus drivers, they just kind of, oh, they, they can do things too. Like they can ride on the shoulder of the road and not get in trouble. Oh my God. Um, especially, yeah, <laughs> especially during rush hour. So the first time that happened to me and I just about lost it, um, it was, uh, um, whatchamacallit, it was, um, primaries. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, the traffic was crazy on the exit that I was supposed to get off on and the short bus was like, oh, forget this. She starts driving on the the shoulder and, you know, there's miles of backup and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And he's like, it's fine. We can do this. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) So, yeah, that was, that was kind of a first for me. So, um, it's really been an experience to actually trust other people, but I also think that it's given me oh, kind of an insight into like what to expect if I ever am able to get back on the road myself again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I can kind of predict the behavior behavior of other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Not just other drivers, but really specifically the cab drivers and the buses. You know, it's it's a whole different world once you've uh, enjoyed the <laughs> the wonderful uh, spectacle that is having other people drive you on yeah. a more common basis. Um, I don't know. I I decided this weekend that I don't like Ubers very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they just. I mean, I was in Toronto a couple weeks ago, and, like, I I would almost take driving in New York over Toronto, um, and I didn't drive either place, but <laughs> just, but I don't know, it's, like, how Ubers are, one, it feels sketchy if you're by yourself, like, I don't mm-hmm. know, I feel like I could get kidnapped, and two, like, um... I don't know, like, Ubers don't, because it's just normal people, they don't seem to have the same grasp of the city like taxi drivers do, and so it just takes longer to go places, or um, they don't know where to pick you up, or (laughs) things like that. Um, Plus, it just seems like taxis are, out of the two, um, usually a little more accessible. (laughs) Not always, but usually um although with ubers i guess you can get like the big ones and get like a suburban <laughs> to drive you two miles but yeah well my challenge um you know with with taxis i don't actually pay for them those are paid through with a contract with um 
the insurance companies that we have here in Minnesota. Oh, sure. And Yeah, and I don't know if you guys have that at all because that's part of the medical assistance contracts that we have here. Um, so I'm not sure if that's... Um, I'm guessing I mean, Wisconsin doesn't have it because of You have reason. a jerky governor. Yes. <laughs> I like to call him Governor McDoucheface, but... No, right. Probably get and I'm almost certain that if I would have stayed down in Arizona, I wouldn't have had even half of the resources that I do here. No. So you wouldn't. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why my family wanted me to come back up here. Is you know just have better resources. So, um, so that's why I'm I'm in the taxi. So I'm forever grateful that I have that resource because um, when I first moved up here, I didn't have. Um, I didn't have everything done with, with getting signed up with medical assistance and stuff, so I had to pay out of pocket for the taxis, and that was eating up about $500 a month out of my budget. Wow. So, yeah, it was really expensive because, like, you know, I'm I'm going to doctor's appointments like um, three or five times a week, so it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, back to the whole driving thing, I I hope that I can drive again. Um, but I really am grateful to have these resources um, available to me, even if it just means that eventually the the taxis are taken away and I still only have the short bus. Um, it still is a relatively inexpensive way for me to get around. It's $3 for each leg of the trip, so um, it's not a big deal for me to pay $6 instead of like $50 to go to a doctor's <laughs> appointment. Yeah, you know, it's just there's just a little bit of difference between those fares. Uh, <laughs> just smidge, just smidge. You know, the difference between like being able to afford your medicine and not. <laughs> right. So bad. Well, yep. we are just almost out of time. Um, I have had so much fun talking to you. Yeah. And I just, I am so grateful that we have had you as our first guest. I don't, I don't know why I say we because it's just me. Um, so, uh, maybe have me and my um, illnesses are so happy. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's, you know what? It's because the guinea pigs are downstairs and <laughs> they're very invested in this. Um, <laughs> T before he left this morning was trying to tell them to. Uh, make lots of noises for me today and <laughs> help me work. Oh, so, they're so cute. Um, it's one of the things I hate about having this cold that I have right now. They get upper respiratory issues really easily. And so like, I have to like Purell my hands every time I'm going to give them hay or <laughs> give them stretches. I mean, like I probably don't have to, but like, I would rather do that than, you know, the alternative yeah. that possibly happen. So, yeah. Ugh. So I want to kind of close on a fun thing, you know, just like we do with the chats. I always try to ask a fun question, and, um, you know, maybe maybe it'll turn into like a James Lipton thing, and I'll. <laughs> everybody like the same five questions um but but so let's borrow a couple from them so uh what is your favorite curse word 
or or like replacement curse word? Um, you know, my nephews um, for a while were were getting really good at curse words, and they're younger. Um, they are seven and eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seven year old, when he was like five, he came up with fucker pants. So oh, that's a good I like one. fucker pants. Yeah. Yeah, I I like uh I like using replacement ones a lot too. Like I'll use like frickle frackle instead <laughs> of fuck. It's just like I don't know. It makes me laugh, and so that I'm not as angry at whatever I'm like yelling fuck <laughs> at. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite thing to do to pamper yourself? Um. Man, or like self-care I, thing. I, you know what? Um, I like to sing, and I have a pretty good voice. So, um, lately I've been singing a lot, and I I sing before all of my surgeries too. Oh, smart! That's a fun thing. Yeah. Okay, um, and last one, I promise. What is your favorite thing about yourself? It could be physical or, like, personality-wise or about your awesome, like, fake Cthulhu beard situation or... <laughs> yeah, everybody likes that mask, and it only cost me $10. <laughs> it's the best $10 I think you've ever spent. <laughs> um... Man, I don't know what my favorite thing is. Um, well, you know, I think that my sister, my mom, and I got really lucky because we had the only green eye, eyes out of the whole family. Like all eight kids and 21 grandkids and 26 great-grandkids, we got the only green eyes. So, yeah. I I have a similar thing. My um, My aunt and I are the only two that have blue eyes, like in that part of the family, like my sister's kids. I think Marissa has blue eyes. Oh, God. I don't know now. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) It's okay. I don't think my four-year-old niece is going to be listening to my podcast. It's fine. (laughs) But no, I I feel you. It's, um, I, one, I think eyes are like the window to our soul. Like you can tell a lot by looking at someone's eyes. Um, like serial killers, for instance, like if you look at their <laughs> eyes, like it's, it's almost like dull behind them or matte. Like it's not, there's not that sparkle that everybody mm-hmm. else has. Um, but two, I mean, eyes can just be so expressive and we don't, I don't think we give eyes enough credit for like how expressive they can make us, you know, like. You can look totally happy without smiling at all if you're just doing the right things with your eyes. <laughs> and making Yeah, faces. I got to work on my poker face. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> poker face and then like Tyra Banks, what does she call it? Is it smiles, like smiling eyes, smiles? Oh, sure. Yeah. Get some get some uh America's top cripple models when we can (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that would be so much fun though yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Chelsea, ma'am, I I have enjoyed having you, and um, I am sure that our guests have enjoyed listening to you and learning more about, you know, dating and fet life and us talking about sexual education in our beautiful country. Um, <laughs> you got to work on your poker face, too. <laughs> I do. It comes off really bad in my voice. <laughs> um, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. If you had half as much fun listening to Chelsea and I talk as I did actually talking to her, I know you had an amazing time already. Or at least I hope you did. And I hope Chelsea really enjoyed being on the podcast, too. It was super brave of her to sign up to be the first person, although I don't think she knew that when she signed up. As a result, uh, there were some technical glitches (laughs) because I'm not the best at testing things out. The nice thing is that Chelsea's a badass friend and a super cool person, so she toughed it out even though I had to call her like three times because my internet hung up on her. Whoops. Technology. Right now, I do want to go over some kind of housekeeping type stuff. If you listened to the first episode of the podcast, and thank you to those of you who did and gave me some great feedback, um... I kind of just winged it, and so it was really nice to have feedback about, like, oh my god, this sounded so well thought out. I just honestly sat down for half an hour, talked, recorded it, and put it online without even listening to it. Um, I usually don't do that because I have major anxiety issues, so again, it was super nice to get the positive feedback. If you've listened to that first episode... My vision for the podcast is a little different than than what's going to actually happen. My friend Kristen Coppins, who I love with all my heart, is super overworked and not doing well health-wise, so really the last thing I want to do is ask her to try to do the podcast with me every two weeks. It's just not fair, and she needs to take that time to take care of herself. I think all of us can appreciate that. So, instead of doing, like, every two weeks a podcast where one time it's chronic sex-related and the next time it's just us talking about how it's like to live with chronic illnesses or having very similar names or always getting invited to the same healthcare conferences because we're that cool, um, it'll just basically be me right now, which is totally fine. I hope that Kristen will be able to be a little bit more involved in the future, but I also hope more that she'll be able to take care of herself and get the rest she needs. Kristen, if you're listening to this, you better be resting. So with all that said, Chronic Sex will be produced every two weeks. I have a ton of episodes right now to go through, edit, splice, whatever other fancy podcast terms you can think of. And then get them up. I also want to make sure that I go through and do some written accounts in order to be as accessible as possible. So there may be a slight delay in some of the episodes going up just because of timing. Those show notes, along with, you know, kind of the transcripty deal, 
will be able to be found over at chronicsex.org under podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Chronic Sex so far, please consider subscribing. That way you won't miss a single episode. And if you're on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever fancy gadgets you use, why not rate us? I realize I keep saying us, and it's just, it's really hard to come to terms with the fact that, like, I'm my own boss and I have to make the decisions. And it's a really uncomfortable position for me to be in because, as an example, my husband will ask what I want for dinner, and I'll say, I don't know, what about you? And he'll say, I don't know, what about you? And then I'll say, I don't know, I'm easy, why don't you pick? And neither of us want to pick, so I may not be the best person to be my own boss, just because it's hard to make those kinds of decisions, even in something as simple as food. Meh. As always, you can reach me from chroniksex.org. There you can also find links to our various social media accounts, favorite resources, and more about the chronic sex movement. You can also shoot me a line if you'd like to be involved, whether that's posting a guest post, adding some much-needed information to our resource page, or even being a podcast guest. Oh my. Anyway, I hope that you've really enjoyed today, and I hope you'll come back for next time. The really exciting thing about next time is we'll be speaking with DJ Drac, who is an HIV slash AIDS um, patient slash health activist type person, and if you couldn't guess, also a DJ. Yeah, he is pretty cool. So I hope you tune in to hear my conversation with him, and I hope that you have an amazing rest of your day, rest of your week, and hopefully coming up soon, a great weekend. Love you, love bug. Thank you.